Hello, and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. My guest for this episode is Deborah Parker Wong, the co-editor with Pam Strayer of Slow Wine USA. Centralis, my winery, is honored to be listed in the Slow Wine Guide. I say honored because Slow Wine is unique in the entire realm of wine scoring or recommendation guides in that it takes into account the ecological context of the wine that they recommend. Nearly all other wine scoring and recommendation guides that I know of reflect the problem that plagues wine in general. That is the problem of disconnection. Our disconnection from the natural world where our food and beverage comes from. When wine reviewers and guides give a 100-point score to a wine, what does that tell you about the way the fruit was grown? What does it tell you about the way that the winery conducts its business, treats its employees, manages its land, or interacts with its community? It tells you nothing about these things. Yet aren't these things vitally important to the quote-unquote greatness of a wine? Can a wine be great if it tastes amazing, yet poisons children in nearby schools? And I use this example of poisoning children because it's an actual example from both Napa and Bordeaux. Our disconnection from the context of wine is the only reason we revere 100-point scores that are based on the flavor of a wine, rather than think them ridiculous. I tried to point this out at one point by creating the ecological wine score as a comprehensive yet satirical take on giving a wine a score that is actually meaningful and all that would have to be considered. If you want to check that out, you can see this at ecologicalwinescore.com. I'm still waiting to review my first wine because I don't think anybody is willing to give me all the data that would be necessary to evaluate a wine meaningfully. Slow wine and the slow wine snail of approval reconnect wine to its context in a human community and living ecosystem, and Deborah walks us through how it does this. We talk about the slow wine manifesto, which I'll make available on the episode page at organicwinepodcast.com. And we talk about the research that is required to get behind some of the green facade that wineries rely on and understand the complex practices that no one certification can capture. So much more goes into a wine than just its sensory evaluation or organic or biodynamic certification. Just for fun, we also talk about Drops of God, which if you haven't seen it, we don't spoil anything. And we talk about how the common idea of wine, you know, the Eurocentric monoculture that has been spread around the globe through capitalist imperialism is actually not going down so well among young folks. Crazy, right? A big thanks to Deborah for this fun and engaging conversation and for letting us know about slow wine. Enjoy. Deborah, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Adam. I'm so happy to be here to talk with you. <laughs> hey, I'm very excited to talk to you. And so many for so many reasons i think we have some similarities but really we got in touch be- because of your role as the national editor usa for slow food slow wine guide right um, absolutely my you- my role is actually co-editor, co-editor um, i was okay. appointed national editor um, in 21, but last year I welcomed Pam Strayer, who was senior editor, as my oh. co-editor. So I want to make sure that that um, that's really clear that um, there are two of us leading the charge here at Slow Wine USA. Well, fantastic. Well, I know Pam um, as a 
you know, a, an organic warrior, really. Um, so I'm sure that is a Absolutely. great addition to the team. I'm sure she is our giving... subject matter expert in all things, conventional, <laughs> organic, biodynamic, and regenerative. And she is absolutely a prolific environmental journalist and a real advocate and an inspiration to me every day. So Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a fun team and a fun job too. But for those who maybe aren't as familiar with slow food, slow wine, and its origins and things like that, would you mind digging into that a little bit? Tell you know, sure, give us some background sure. and context. Yeah. Well, slow wine. I'll I'll start I'll start from the current and work backward because slow wine USA is um, in its seventh year of research. We have I have our sixth print edition in my hands as we speak, and I look at it all the time because we're researching <laughs> 2024. We're already right. in next year. So we're talking about the future, actually. But right. um, we did not become a standalone guide from our sister publication, The Slow Wine Guide Italy, um, until 2021. And that was our pandemic miracle edition. We did all the research virtually um, in 2020 for the 2021 edition. And that was the first time that we broke out from our, our parent book um, to be a standalone guide. Now, Slow Wine Italy, the, the book is like a Bible. I mean, mm -hmm. we look like a pamphlet compared to Slow Wine Italy. Um, <laughs> and they're in their 13th year of research. Their 12th edition is out. And they are the most popular wine guide in Italy. And Italians love guides. And, they're, huh. uh, and this guide is updated annually. So they're avid readers of guides and they're looking for fresh news all the time. And that's why our guide is so special. We update it. We write fresh copy every year for the entire guide. So yeah. it's, it's uh, what, fun. What it's, is, it's a good read. Why? I mean, so what are the reasons that slow these guides exist? Why? I mean, what, okay. what's behind well, it? Okay, well, we'll go back even further. It? To our founder, yeah. the founder of Slow Food, who's Carlo Petrini, who is alive and well, living in Bra, Italy. I got to see him at the Slow Wine Fair um, two years ago um, and meet him for the first time in person there. But he was the founder and the instigator of the Slow Food Movement in Italy, which is an international movement and has been. Um, yeah. He um, really wasn't... How do I say it? More than an advocate, he was a resistor. He resisted fast food. He resisted yeah. the incursion of fast food in Italy. And it was a McDonald's trying to open on the Spanish steps. And he basically got up in arms and he rallied people behind the cause and and it didn't happen. And and that was really one of the, the key farm to table movements that, that originated in Italy and caught on here, you know, with early with early yeah. farm to table advocates like Alice Waters. So what are the tenets that that are the, and the values that go into these organizations? Like what, well, why? That's a great question, Adam, because uh, Slow Wine has what's known as a manifesto. Oh, yeah, I want to get into that. <laughs> yeah, the manifesto um, is is a document and it's a 10 point document that we view as our aspirational guidelines here in the United States. Now, it's the it's translated from Italian into English, but it is the manifesto of the Italian wine guide of the Italian slow wine guide. Um, but we have our own criteria here in the United States that differs from that of 
the Italian guide and other guides that exist. We have a guide in China. We have a guide in South America. They're small. They're just getting started. We're, we're actually, we're actually maturing (laughs) as as a guide. Yeah. Um, But the manifesto um, is something that we use as our guiding, our guiding principles. But our criteria well, for the U.S. guide are a little more rigorous than what's outlined in the manifesto. Oh, why is that? Well, because... We need it here? <laughs> we decided we have to draw a line in the sand, and our line in the sand is the lowest possible bar for land stewardship, which is mm. farming without the use of synthetic herbicide. Got it. Okay. Got it. Great. Now, I I will say part of my excitement in wanting to talk to you... Um, was my discovery of the slow wine snail of approval, which is, as far as I know, the only sort of, you know, rating or award given to like a winery, for example, that provides context beyond just the flavor of its wine, which I think is, first of all, wonderful on your part and ridiculous on the part of all of the other rating systems. I, <laughs> I, I've been for a long time, um, just a, I've been writing about this. I've been talking about like, you know, what if the best wine in the world you found out was, you know, farmed with child slave labor and it's oh, gotten yeah. hundred points for the last five vintages. Would you still think it's the greatest wine in the world? Of course not. Like nobody well, would want to drink it. We would boycott it. And, and yet we, every year give these hundred point ratings, regardless of anything other than, you know, a, quote unquote, blind taste of a glass of wine. That or sometimes no not even that. And not even that. Yeah, not right. even, and quite, and most often fair, fair. not even that. Right. Um, but I can tell you that's exactly what happened to me. I did not start out um, working on the slow wine guide as uh, organic warrior, like my colleague. I started out as an advocate, someone who was interested, wanted to know more. And now I've become an advocate. But yeah. what happened to me along the way, that journey to where I am now, is that many of the wines that I enjoyed and many of the people that made and farmed the wines that I liked don't qualify for the guide. And that was right. really a bucket of cold water when I realized that I wouldn't be spending my time with those folks unless I was assigned to do so by an editorial outlet, but not for my work with the guide. So. Right. Yeah. No, I, and uh, the funny thing is I did a sort of satiric, I mean, somewhat satiric, somewhat straight. Um, I, I actually built a website called the Ecological Wine Score, which you can, anybody can go look at right now. Oh my gosh, I'll we'll have to do that. It's, right. it's got like a 24 point, you know, criteria list plus four additional criteria that are, you know, weighed into the score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, taste is only 10% of this, you know, the sensory evaluation mm. is only okay. 10% of the overall score. Mm-hmm. And, and it's sort of, so it breaks down. By taste, you yeah, mean like wine quality? The wine, wine quality, quality, yeah. Wine right. sensory evaluation, exactly. Okay. Um, and so the rest of it is like vineyard ecology and, you know, environmental stewardship, you know, human and animal welfare and, you know, things like that. Um, and, and yeah, and, and really like the point was when I did this 24 point list, which like the first one is like all of your, uh, em, you know, employee 
documents like like all of benefits payroll and everything like that so i know nobody's going to turn that over to get a wine score but my point is like that is the kind of context that you need to say whether this wine was produced with any kind of level of integrity because if you're paying everybody bare minimum wage and you know nobody can afford to live you know anywhere near where the wine is grown and they're all whatever you know what i mean or they're you know yeah. whatever yeah. if you're yeah. using exploitive yeah. labor practices or just offering no benefits and expecting people to make the greatest wine in the world and make you rich um yeah you're not getting a very good score <laughs> in the ecological wine score and it's really just a point to like um draw attention to the things that i think the snail of approval and slow wine is has in its manifesto and in its value so that's why i was really excited to talk to you about it because you're doing right, seriously well, something that i did satirically and i think it's wonderful and i know how much work must go into it in the research you say you're researching and i real and like i don't i just want to underline that for everyone listening like understanding a great wine takes research it's not just something you pick up a glass and be like this is the best wine i've ever had it takes research to know whether it's a great wine and and i feel like we've lost touch with that i would love to hear more of your about your journey in that discovery as well i mean what you just said was really profound well yeah. i would tell you that i would tell you that taking a stance on something and sticking to it and and walking a very fine line, which we do, because there are, there are dozens of different scenarios in which we navigate how to include wineries in the guide. How do we do that right. if they are have a certified organic estate, but they purchase conventionally farmed fruit, herbicided fruit? Right. And if they use that fruit to make wines under the same label as their beautiful certified organic estate, how do you navigate that? And that's right. that's what we that's what Pam and I have been doing with the guide is navigating that fine line. So we we basically and the team of coordinators and tons of credit to the amazing team, talented team of people that help us write these guide entries. I mean, we don't do it alone. There's an amazing team of people in California, Oregon, Washington, and New York states. And we we are we're navigating the ship, but they're rowing, <laughs> you know, so and we're writing we're writing a lion's share of the guide entries ourselves as well. But it is a team. It, it, there is a whole team of people that do it. And, you know, and, and keeping your, you know, keeping yourself righted is really important. You know, understanding the choices that you're making, why you're making them, why we why we're doing what we do is so that consumers could pick up the guide and just trust that we've done the homework. It's virtually impossible for an average everyday wine drinker to ask the right questions or get their hands on the information that they need to make choices. And so we basically have, we've basically done that heavy lifting with the guide. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of that research and some of the scenarios that you come across just to give a glimpse into that? Sure. Well, I have a good example. A, a good example would be um, the fact that you know, very well-known wineries, and I'll use um, Fetzer, which is now Bonterra, as an example, and it's one of the best examples we have. You know, the Fetzer winery makes hundreds of thousands of, if not millions, <laughs> of gallons <laughs> of wine every year. But yeah. Bonterra is was the first organic, large, widely available organic wine brand, and is a fantastic organic brand in terms yeah. of quality and range of style and types of wines that are bottled under the Bonterra label. Um, 
Bonterra qualifies for the guide, and we've listed Bonterra in the guide, but Fetzer never did because they didn't farm, they don't farm everything to that criteria, you know, to, right. to farming without synthetic herbicide and good or better wine quality, meaning the Wine and Spirit Education Trust systematic approach to tasting rubric is what we use to determine wine quality. So, Got it. so that's a, again, that's a pretty, it's pretty easy for most California wines to, to hit the good mark there. So that's really not a barrier, but, you know, explaining to a consumer, a consumer might think, oh, well, you know, Fetzer and Bonterra, they're the same. And if I buy Fetzer wines and Fetzer has now rebranded itself as Monterra. But if I, in the past, if I bought a Fetzer wine, the consumer might think that it was farmed and made the same way that Monterra was. You know, there was a mm-hmm. kind of a, a a gray area there where consumers really wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, and in, in, if they didn't read the label very carefully, and many people don't, um, there's a lot of assumptions being made there. So the idea that we can help wineries communicate in a transparent and accurate way to consumers, like be really transparent. Yes, some of our wines are made from purchased fruit that is farmed conventionally. And these are those wines. And then these wines are the wines that we list in the guide, only wines that are farmed without herbicide. And those are the wines that are in the guide. And these wines, you can be rest assured, came from certified or um, authenticated um, organic you know, farming practices. So, right. So is the, it sounds like one of the things you encounter is what I would describe as greenwashing by association, perhaps as a way of putting Oh, absolutely. It. Well, it, it can be, we found in the past and quite honestly, I'm being very candid. We found that it, sometimes it was done out of benign, just out of like benign neglect or ignorance. And then other right. times it was done very conventionally. Very, very right. intentionally, conventionally right. and intentionally. It was <laughs> right. done intentionally. Right. So people, um, and people have really, people, when I say people in the industry, wineries have really backed off of greenwashing. Greenwashing is is over. People have adopted the pillars of sustainability and they understand that, yes, sustainability is complex. There's far more to it than farming without herbicide, but land stewardship is the foundation of sustainability. And But water reclamation, solar, carbon, uh, carbon reduction, all in sequestering reduction, all those things are really, really important. And we celebrate all of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you really think that greenwashing is out? Because I, I feel like maybe more than ever, I've seen it. And I mean, I specifically, I mean, (laughs) well, I mean, I'll just, and just to depends on what industry, are you talking just about the wine industry? Yeah, mainly just about the wine industry is I I try and to limit what I know, but I, I guess I'll put it this way. I, I've, I've, you know, some of this is not firsthand, but I do know like just sustainable, the sustainable certification, for example, okay. it does well, allow the use of, wax. yes, right. right. The, the whole right. The certification landscape yeah. is another the, ball of wax compared to how independent wineries or producers are behaving in the marketplace. Now, right, though, right. There's a disconnect there. Actually, I think the marketplace is is doing a better job than the hundreds of certification uh, entities right. that exist. <laughs> right. Cool. And I just wanted to draw that out for anyone listening because oh, it, that, those can, certifications are them. very confusing and daunting to get, to wrap yes. your head around. They yes. take 
as much research to understand as you know whether a wine is made responsibly i mean you might as well just research the winery than <laughs> that you're trying to buy wine right. from rather than the certification the certification body well let me tell yeah. you that we at the slow wine guide we recognize USD, USDA organic CCOF, which is California's organic certification, Demeter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really it. Now, that's not to say we don't uh, we don't reference some of the other um, Napa Green, which is making huge strides. We do reference those programs when, when wineries participate in them. We'll talk about that in our guide entry, which is quite brief. Uh, but the only those are the only transparent certifications that we recognize in terms of whether we classify a winery as being organically certified, certified organic or biodynamic, right? Right. That's great. And we yeah, do that- know the ins and outs of all those other certifications as well. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a full time job just knowing that. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm I love. Lucky I, I have Pam to help. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know Pam is uh, really on top of it. I, I <laughs> some of the greenwashing has stopped because Pam has uh, cracked down. Yes, Pam was rare. Yes. Well, I would say that you know that we what we've seen and just in the last two years, people are calling us, people are emailing us and contacting us. They, it's a like-minded and growing community. People are people, producers, wine growers are changing their farming practices as we speak. The guide yep. is growing. Uh, organically, pun intended, because yeah. <laughs> practices are changing. Practices yeah. are changing. Now, you know, three years ago, that wasn't the case. Four years ago, that wasn't the case. We were beating down doors, you know, but we still had a, a group of like-minded people. But now more people went on that bandwagon because it's the right place to be. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, and if we could just talk about some of those, some of the areas that, you know, go into what is evaluated so sourcing for example and these are this is just like the the complex level of things that somebody who just comes to a glass of mine wine might not take into account but you know things like sourcing environmental impact cultural connection i'd love to hear your thoughts about what that how that is evaluated and looked at community involvement as well staff support and business values so any of those that are you know, we're just not used to, to thinking about how are you guys taking those into evaluation when coming up with this, when you're you know doing this research and making right. these choices? Okay. Well, we're really lucky in that we're really lucky in that we have slow food, which ha- has kind of led the charge. They have a, they have a snail award that slow food gives a snail award. And so our snail is really, our snail award is based on our manifesto but we have a matrix that we have developed in that we have developed based on slow foods snail matrix and it's theirs is very very rigorous and we have based ours on that too so snails are not just handed out willy-nilly you know that they really do have to they they really um meet the highest aspirational guidelines that we have and you know basic things like at least 70 percent of their fruit must come from their estate, which in California can be tricky because a lot of, yeah. you know, we have a, we have an entire industry based on, on sourcing fruit. Um, so just in looking at the manifesto, that is, is an absolutely a key thing, but there are exceptions for California because of our, our, our industry here, the way it's set up. Um, you know, right. 
wineries really absolutely cannot use synthetic herbicide or chemical fertilizers. The, you know, they have to be very conscious about the, their approach to their environmental resources, which of course is, which are the pillars of sustainability spelled out um, related to how they're using their their resources um, and conserving their resources, um, the sustainability of their buildings, which is built into that as well too, particularly related to water and energy use and those types of things. Um, you know, manipulation of the wine itself, you know, wines, wines um, cannot uh, be subject to too much enological footprint, right? A hundred percent new oak that, that completely swamps or suppresses any expression of terroir, which is really very important to the, the basis of, uh, you know, kind of the wine style approach for the guide. So we're very careful about looking at looking at wines and making sure that they are not dominated by winemaking, that they are expressing their place to some degree, and that they haven't been put through processes like reverse osmosis or, you know, other methods of of concentration, you know, that are typically yeah. used or, or, or dilution <laughs> here in California, <laughs> concentration or dilution, um, right. you know, keeping sulfite, uh, keeping sulfite use in check, certainly right. not in excess of us, uh, 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 you know, USDA has very, you're not allowed to oh, use yeah. sulfites, but CCOF, but the EU guidelines for sulfites. So we look at sulfites and there, you know, the sulfite use is going down, 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 which is fantastic. I could draw, I could make you a a, a line graph to, on that one. And uh, as it, in terms of the wineries that are in the guide, how we've seen the the use of sulfites decrease. Um, you yeah. know, the idea of indigenous yeast helping express terroir. You know, yeah. indigenous yeasts or or yeasts that have been um, selected selected indigenous yeast, you know, yeast that have been cultivated from the place. Um, commercial yeast is kind of frowned on. And of course, winemaking defects. And that's, you know, the whole natural wine um, category. Um, it, we certainly have wineries in the guide that um, are zero, zero or natural wines, but defects are, are considered um, suppression of terroir. And when you're a trained taster, and we are working with a rubric to evaluate quality, um, that helps. We have, you know, we have um, a, a guide for how to determine if the wine is flawed or faulted, and if it would qualify for the guide that way. Got it. Yeah, I, I was going to ask. That's always a tricky one. I, mean, I love that that is part of the the evaluation standard, but I know it it must be difficult. You know, so you get into certain gray areas and spectrums of you know, certain taints of aromas and some people like certain thresholds and other people hate the, the exact same threshold. So I'm sure it gets a little tricky there. Um, do you, I mean, that that's a, I, I guess, I don't know. How do you manage that when you get into some of those tricky areas where? Well, it's actually, you know, Adam, as a, as a sensory scientist and as a trained taster, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> oh, you, you have- how, you have clean wine, you have flawed wine, and you have faulted wine. And flawed wine is wine that there may be a noticeable or discernible um, defect, but it's still drinkable. Okay. You know, so I would this, drink it, or if I poured it for you, you would drink it. It's considered I style, see. right? Gotcha. But right. a fault is a wine that is succumbing to um, uh, unwanted 
microbial, microbial activity, you know, the bad yeah. actors. <laughs> <laughs> and that could okay. be Britannomyces, that could be Acetobacter, it could be just about anything. So, um, you know, there are plenty of really good, clean, um, good as in quality, good, clean, natural wines. I've oh, yeah. got beautiful wines from Atori sitting here on my desk right now. Zero, zero, beautiful, beautiful wines. So no problems. We got lots oh, yeah. of good, lots of good, healthy wine to taste. Okay. I have a challenging question for you now. Um, yeah. I noticed oak chips are prohibited. And, you know, from what I understand of oak barrel manufacturing, versus the use of oak chips if you want oak flavor chips are actually the more ecological choice because uh, barrels waste so much of the tree that is to be able to make the staves for barrels and so mm -hmm. i've heard this argument where you know if if you want a little oak flavor chips are the way to go and you should eschew new barrels or barrels in general because mm -hmm. maybe not barrels in general but new barrels because you're you know essentially saving a lot of tree waste how, yeah, how does I, okay so my take on that right away is i think the folks that have that position probably aren't winemakers or wineries <laughs> because honestly i don't see i see people i see people when i say people i mean winemakers and wineries and uh wine growers um being really judicious in how they and and economical in how they use their their barrels a new barrel one new barrel could provide enough oak character for you know for their entire production so it's yeah. not it you could buy one some wineries will tell me oh we only buy one new barrel a year one new barrel every two years right and that is enough oak influence for the particular wine that we want to make with oak um, and then that barrel will go on and have a very long life as a neutral barrel so barrels yeah. don't come and go at a very rapid pace. There's yeah. also a really good resale market for barrels into other industries. Now the, the tequila industry has started picking up a lot of high-end cab barrels for their, um, their uh, casked uh, finished products. And right. so there is a, there is a good aftermarket for barrels as well, as well too. So, yeah. you know, there's a, there's two sides of that coin. And, okay. um, I, th I do think that I, the no chip thing is really, really to screen out large commercial production. Yes. Right. Got it. Understood. Um, great. I, I mean, this is lovely. I'd love that there is this manifesto. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you like Either it. Way. We do too. And we, we look at it every day and we, we also explain it to wineries and we, uh, we really try to consider all of the ways that the wineries are sustainable. I mean, yeah. we really do. Wineries are working really hard. I think I'm so proud of the wineries and the producers that are, that uh, support the guide. And of course we don't charge them to list them. We don't charge to list them in the guide. We do right. taste three wines. We do of course need a little bit of their time, but um, it's, there's no fee to be listed there. So the people that want to be in the guide, it's meaningful to them. Yeah. Well, I love also in the manifesto, it sort of wraps up with two principles. One is collaborate with the entire surrounding farming community and the other is encourage biodiversity. And again, just some of the things that, you know, nearly every, if not every other sort of 
evaluate, you know, wine evaluation <laughs> uh, measurement, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. it neglects to even consider, you know, even put on the radar of considering. Right. So, but you I know, think- those those things are just absolutely integrated into what our wineries are doing. I mean, they're yeah. they're they're they are community oriented. They do think about their neighbors. They do the, the biodiversity is is rule of thumb. I mean, people have yeah. taken out all their ornamental plantings and and replaced them with um, with native plant material and and habitat um, and and bio corridors and and it's phenomenal. It's it's yeah. absolutely phenomenal what we see people doing. Um, I don't. Of course, I've seen grass in front of some wineries, but n- the wineries and the guide, you're going to see, you know, you're going to see, you're going to see milkweed for the monarch butterflies. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I just, uh, I just found out, well, at least I don't, I don't know about California milkweed, but I was on the East Coast and there the, the standard milkweed is, is also a delicious um, shoot that you can eat like sort yes, of asparagus. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Um, and it's, I like it better than asparagus actually. <laughs> um, mm. and magnolia yeah. pods. Have you ever had pickled magnolia pods? I haven't, but I've heard about them. I've right heard now. about I, them too. I just never got them the magnolia tree at the right time, but I was just uh, harvesting some French lavender that, uh, to French lavender from my garden here in San Francisco and, uh, hanging it up to dry down in my wine cellar in a cool, and, a cool, dark place. So and what do you do with it? What are you going to do with well, that? Well, I'm going to make I'm going to make lavender wands, which are a very Victorian. It's a Victorian oh. thing. Um, you you use the stems to encase the flowers because they drop. You know, if you don't put right, them in the right. bag or something. So, and anyhow, it's a, it's a little way of making a of making a of preserving the lavender, and and they're fun. And it's just a little project I was going to do with my lavender. It works with French lavender, not with English lavender. So. But then, what do you do with those wands? What oh, they're they they're for? they become scent wands. They're you know they're sachets or potpourri. They're used for scenting oh, okay. drawers or you know right. um, uh, usually typically tucked into drawers, clothing drawers. You know, delicates. I, if I remember. oh socks <laughs> or <laughs> I think socks. My, okay. I think my CrossFit socks could use a couple. <laughs> Well, I, you, I mean, you brought this up, you have a history as a chef and how, how has that informed and sort of led you to this path? Like I, it's, I, I also share a bit of this. I mean, I, it all just goes hand in hand with me, but slow food, slow wine, as you can see, it's all one thing sort of growing together. But, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'd love to hear a little bit about you as a chef and what your, what, what that is like now and as you're working with wine. Absolutely. Well, I came to wine through food, but I want to be careful and make sure, you know, I have the highest regard for chefs. And I <laughs> um, I uh, worked as a chef in residence to put myself through junior college. And I um, had a, I worked on a wonderful uh, working avocado and citrus ranch in Santa Barbara and had a beautiful organic garden and raised a, um, and, and raised a steer and did any number of things related to farm to table um, while um, doing some very ambitious cooking at the same time. And I have some training, uh, some basic training, but I've only worked as a private chef and done some catering. So um, I would say more like a glorified cook, but um, (laughs) I I came to wine through food and it was the best choice I ever could have ever made. It was, I, you know, I absolutely found the right path because I, when it came time to make a choice about uh, career change, um, 
I had been working um, as a public relations executive in the high tech industry, but I had studied, I'd started in food and wine and I'd continued to study wine the whole time and I've always cooked. So I had to make a choice and I looked at the front of the house and I looked at the back of the house and I said, well, it's going to be the front of the house for me. So, um, and that's when I decided to really become a student of wine. I started writing about wine in 2004 but I can, I've never stopped training. I became a WSET diploma in 2009 and I'm studying for my master's degree now. So, but food is very, very important <laughs> in daily life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I just wanted to call out that, you know, in reading the Slow Wine website, it talks about wine as an agricultural product. And this is, you know, a big connection that I, I like to make as well. And that, you know, these these choices that we make every day of what to eat and drink really direct, you know, global agriculture. And it, you know, its importance is can't be overstated in in why we choose and what we choose to consume uh, daily. And that because they are daily choices, they're all the more important because it's the most, yeah, it's the choice we make the most. It's, you know, has the most impact really. Um, Almost, and I, I, I just want to draw you out about you know, sort of that local, that sense of local food. Of I mean, I know what it's like to have you know like a big garden that I can go out and grab stuff for dinner, and to have chickens and bees and things that are right in the backyard. How I mean, how how does that inform wine? Like, how do you see that crossover with wine? I mean, have you done any thinking about that? Well, personally. I'm living it. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm much more tuned in now than I think I ever was, even though I lived farm to table lifestyle for many years. I, I'm, I live in the city of San Francisco. I go to the farmer's markets and boy, you better have some, uh, you better have some, some budget saved up to do that because visiting the <laughs> farmer's market in San Francisco is no, um, is, you know, is it, it it's, <laughs> You need to plan accordingly. <laughs> it's, yes. it's, you know, it's not inexpensive to <laughs> live farm to table in the city. Um, I think yeah. when you start to get into Napa or Sonoma or a little farther afield, you might be able to do it a little more economically. But in the city, it, it starts to become a little more challenging. But what we see, we see a little bit of disconnect between the people that are really heavily committed to slow food and active in slow food and slow wine. We need to work on forging that connection Hmm. um, and and forge a stronger connection. And we are. Slow Food USA is our e-commerce partner for the sales of the Slow Wine Guide. And we are very thankful for that. They have chapters all over the United States and some of their members have found their way to the guide and purchased it. But even in our own backyard, we need to do more education and, and build more connection between the slow food communities and the slow wine communities. What do you think that disconnect is about? Possibly on the slow food side, realizing that there is a slow wine movement. You Mm. know, Um, I think the slow wine people are far more connected to slow, the idea of slow food than the other way around. It's like slow, like slow wine hasn't really entered the, the universe of slow food in many (laughs) ways. I mean, when you go to a slow, but there are other organizations like, um, uh, the the wonderful group that does the the um, dining out in the field events and the, the name is escaping me at the moment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They, out in the field or something. Out like in the that. field, yeah. Now they've had. I went to a dinner at Trace Boris, which is one of our wineries in the guide, and and um, 
you know, so there was a, there's a very strong standing in the field. That's it. outstanding. Yes. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I, I lost track <laughs> of that outstanding in the field. Well, you know, they host dinners at wineries, so <laughs> there's no lack of connection there, but I think, right. um, and actually though, some of the people who are active in slow food and the Sonoma chapter have actually contributed to the slow wine guide in the past. So we've made a little headway there, but it really has been, it, it's really been based on connection and personal connection and getting people yeah, have, to know about it. I have heard that from multiple people who, you know, have spent their time going, you know, taking the extra effort and expense of going to farmer's markets to source their food. And they think about organic at the grocery store and then they grab a bottle of J. Lore to have with that beautiful dinner. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, well. um, that ain't slow food. That ain't slow wine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the feedback I've gotten from someone who recently went to a, a, a slow food event is there's right. all this amazing food on the table and then just quote unquote junk wine. So yeah, I, I, we can definitely help them out with that. We can, you yeah. know, we can do something about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is maybe a little off topic, but you've seen Drops of God. Yes. I take it. I, what was your take on it? I'm just curious. I haven't get, gotten to speak with somebody who is like yeah. in your profession and our profession yeah. who has actually yeah. watched it with, thoughtfully. And what, 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 what was, I guess, just impri- impressions about that? This is just total curiosity on my part. Well, I was impressed enough to track down Sebastian Pledal, who is the wine expert behind Drops of God, and interview him. Right. I, that's what made me ask you. I, I didn't get to read the interview, but I'm curious. What, oh, it's what brief. Le- it's just a one pager. So okay, it, you gotcha. know, it's very straightforward. And I tried to ask him questions that were beyond the obvious, the questions that I, as a, as a sensory scientist and a wine journalist, want to know, wine professional, want to know. But, you know, I said, I said in the story that I wrote that, you know, I can't watch most movies about wine. Because yeah. they're, they, it's just laughable. They fail, and this one succeeded on so many levels. I mean, I have written a column about sensory physiology, human human sensory physiology, perception, wine wine sensory attributes for five years, and so to have a movie that talked about synesthesia and to that that it, that even went there <laughs> was yeah. amazing to me. Um, and of course I watched it with great scrutiny. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I found only the tiniest little things to quibble about. So that doesn't even, they're not even <laughs> worth mentioning. So it was like, that was not the topic of my conversation with Sebastian Pledal. Um, you know, wasn't about, Oh, why did you choose those glasses or whatever? No, that wasn't it at all. <laughs> I mean, it was more about how did, how did you, uh, you, Sebastian, teach these people who are not wine professionals, and given the limited amount of time he had to train them or to teach them, I was, I was just, I was so surprised when he told me. Well, they're actors, of course; they're used to modeling and mimicking, and and you know, sure. yeah. mirroring people. They're that's what they do, but they they did it quite well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, I'm, I mean. If, the synesthesia aspect was great. I I know I, you, that they went there was very cool. I'm yeah. I was I I I enjoyed it too. I sort of just I had a lot of questions about the wine aspect of it too. But I, you know, to me, it was like I really enjoyed 
the sort of melodrama of the whole thing enough. I thought it was well written enough that even if even if the wine stuff was all completely wrong, it was an enjoyable watch. You know what I mean? It's like oh yeah, I know. Well, the wine stuff was all in my mind was mostly right. Yeah, now, right, right. That family, was just an added bonus. The family yeah. drama, you know, the the the, the deception and the, the the angst and all the whole family stuff um, was kind of. You know, I wasn't watching through that lens. I mean, I think it made for right. a good it made for a good story, but um, you know, I was it was I was almost channeling Sebastian Pradal. I was just like watching watching it through my kind of myopic lens. But I I did appreciate <laughs> the other the I did appreciate the other aspects of the storyline as well too. But um, I, I was very impressed. I did ask him how they came up with the valuation. Of, yeah. the, of the seller. And he was really careful about that. They had looked at auction records. Now, wh- where, as somebody who gets to talk to people like that um, for, you know, because of your own, your own career, what, where do you see things headed? I mean, where, what's the next thing that you're excited about? What are some questions that you're asking right now of, of the wine industry as a, I, I would say as a journalist, as, as a journalist. Yeah. Okay, well, I can tell you that when I stand up in front of a group of regional wine growers and use data and analysis and infographics to give them an idea of who their future, what customer is very likely to be, um, and what the current state of direct-to-consumer shipping is, which this particular region relies on entirely, um, and realize that <laughs> someone's called me Debbie Downer behind my back. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of, it's very, it's a tell, you know, the wine industry yeah. is facing some concerns and yeah. to stand up in front of a group of people who are, are it, where this the industry is their livelihood and to say otherwise would be, uh, it would, it would just be pandering to them. It would just, it, you know, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be authentic and it certainly wouldn't be helpful. So, but unfortunately it's not, <laughs> there's, there's, we were facing some challenges and people would like the glass to be half full. And of course I would too, but at the same time, I think we have to be very realistic about, you know, how we, it's the same drumbeat that's been going on for quite a while now about wine's place in the, the, you know, in the, the landscape of, of adult beverages that are available and where wine fits and how future generations view wine in relation to other um, alcoholic beverages and, you know, what the demographic shift looks like for the industry. I mean, these are all very big concerns that are voiced on a, a daily basis. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a tremendous amount of competition and Younger adult consumers are very experiential and they have a broad range of tastes and very little loyalty, brand loyalty. So there are, there are yeah. challenges and wine has, wine already has a lot of baggage <laughs> that it has to kind of, <laughs> it's carrying around a lot of baggage it needs to let go of actually. Yeah. What is that opportunity? Like what, what? What do you see as the opportunity there? What kind of baggage can we let go of? Well, we're talk we we talk about you know the, the key three things, and of course they're called trends, but they're really mark they're really market opportunity, which is alternative packaging, uh-huh. um, which has made wine uh, 
handier, more of a, you know, more of a to-go product, right? It's right. made it a little easier to transport and to, to, um, and, and, and to deal with or to have at least when you're out on the road or you're out doing your active life. Wine, you know, wine as part of a lifestyle, not, yes, I live a wine lifestyle, but wine is just one part of a very active lifestyle or a particular lifestyle that someone has. If wine can have a place in that, great. Um, wine is not asking to be center stage. Wine is asking to be invited to the party, <laughs> you know? Right. So right. it's like, it's like, okay, fine. We'll put it in a can. We'll put it in a aseptic box. We'll put it in a, in a juice pouch. If that's what you want it in, you can have it packaged any way you like. And, you know, and, and you can have very, very good quality wine um, in any package you like. So boxes are really starting to take off now. Huh, you know, okay. boxed wine, yeah. good, high yeah. quality wine in a box that, you know, you're not rushing to the store all the time. It can be in your refrigerator for three months and not oxidize. So that's really right. Packaging is really um, very important. Um, cans are a little, in my mind, are a little more problematic because not all wine styles are suited to being canned. Yeah. You know, sparkling Agreed. wine, pretty good in a can, you know. Right. Light, light white uh, and rosé wines are fine. But so packaging has become something that of an opportunity for wine. Lower alcohol and climate change is not making that easy. <laughs> for warmer <laughs> growing regions. So, but lower alcohol is possible. And yeah. I'm not talking about de-alcoholized wine. No, which no. For the most part is unpalatable. I'm talking about wines that are simply made um, of grapes that are picked earlier and wines that are made to lower potential alcohol levels. So, Well, I mean, that's where I think co-ferments come in as well. Because when you're blending in other fruit that are, you know, less sugar- uh, you you bring down that alcohol naturally. Yeah, that potential alcohol, and you know, there are countries that have been making low alcohol wine all along. The Germans still do it. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, the right grapes um, that yeah, if you're growing the right grapes that ripen earlier at lower lower bricks, you've got it. Yeah, that helps a lot. Riesling absolutely. So lower there. alcohol. Um, I would say um, wine based beverages, and I try everything that comes across my desk. Um, I I try everything. Um. When you're as when you're as wedded to the, the the sensory aspect of wine as I am, it's really hard to replace it with something else. Um, with with a something that's wine like, you know, it just for for myself, it hasn't. I haven't been very successful, but I haven't stopped trying. So I keep I just mm. keep experimenting. But I think there's certainly potential there. Okay, great. Well, this is lovely. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else? Any other questions that we should cover about slow wine or any of these topics that I haven't asked you that I should have? Well, you've covered some fun ground. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't reiterate that, you know, we've, we've got a print edition of the Slow Wine Guide. Um, we make it available in PDF as well. But we... We don't think that we've reached the audience that's going to be the most interested in what's between the covers here. You know, yeah. that the, the, the drinkers, the consumers that really want to vote with their dollars and really yeah. want to patronize um, companies that are, that are working in a like-minded way. Um, we just, we're, we just, we haven't connected with them the way we would like to. And we're starting to do more on social media now. Um, we've, 
you know, we've been pondering, should we do an app? But we really would just like to do a website that has all the information there. And people could just use their phones to go to a website, which we do every day anyhow. You don't right. need a, an app to get information. You've got a browser, right? So right. Um, I don't know. I think it would be interesting to hear from reader, from listeners um, and from readers if they think, you know, that a, that a website would be just as good as an app if they could get the information digitally or if they're, you know, the kind of folks that don't mind the guide floating around their car when they're on the road or tucked into their bag when they're traveling. Um, you know, people say they still like print, but yeah, they, they don't seem to buy it as much as we. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and so to that end, maybe the, the best place online for people to check this out would be slowwineusa.com. Um, if actually, they're USA based, or... <laughs> actually, <laughs> so. actually, it's the website where the guide is for sale, and it's the slow slow food. Like I mentioned, is our slow e-commerce food. partner, and so the the URL for that is simply slowfoodusa.org. Got um, it. If you go to their website, Slow Food USA, and you put in the search "slow wine guide," the page will pop right up. But we do have our own URL. It's slowfoodusa.org product slow wine guide USA 2023. And they've hosted our e-commerce for a couple of years now. And I actually do the fulfillment. So yours truly is shipping your guide. <laughs> awesome. Now, can you nominate somebody to be a snail blazer <laughs> or, or an, <laughs> somebody or an, or an organization, uh, you know, like a winery or something like that? Uh, nominate how, how, well. You can you can tip tip us off to a winery okay. that qualifies, and we can certainly uh, talk with them, taste their wine, determine if they meet our our very simple criteria, and then um, evaluate them for the snail award. Like I said, we have a matrix that's based on the slow food snail because all snails have to be the same snails, right? We have to <laughs> our slow wine snail has to has to be the same, you know, stamp of approval as a slow food snail. So uh, that's right. how we do it. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Shepard. It's been a delight talking to you. I love picking your brain. Thank you for letting me do that. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Adam again. If there's one thing I want you to take away from the Organic Wine Podcast, it's our deep need to be reconnected ecologically to the earth, of course. Beyond that, though, I hope that you get that doing this is an act of joy and even love on my part. I genuinely enjoy and I'm curious to learn about and from each of my guests. And I do the hours of work each week, researching, writing, interviewing, producing, and promoting because I want to connect to you and foster a community of people who ask the questions that I ask here. And if you're still listening at this point, it's probably safe to say that you're part of this community. So thank you. Please consider supporting this work of community building with a little bit of your time by writing a great review or sending me an email at connect at organicwinepodcast.com or just by telling somebody about the podcast. And if you wanted to lend financial support, you can do that as well by subscribing at Patreon. Our Patreon link will be in the show notes and on the support page at organicwinepodcast.com. Thank you.